Welcome to Factually. I'm Adam Conover. Thank you for joining me once again as I talk to an incredible expert about all the amazing things they know that I don't know that you might not know. My mind is going to be blown. Your mind is going to be blown. We're both going to have a great time together. At least that's the intro I've been doing on this show for a couple months now. Maybe I should change it up, come up with a different way to introduce this show, but I do enjoy saying it, and that is what we are here to do. I don't know. If you have uh, if you have thoughts on a new intro, send me an email at factually at adamconover.net. That is the show's email inbox. I do read those emails and I do occasionally even reply to them and I love to hear from you the listener but let's talk about what we are doing on this show today today we are going to talk about political science once again you know we have just two political parties in America and they're locked in permanent combat right they're constantly fighting for control of political institutions and to enact their preferred policies And a lot of people in those parties believe deep down that if they could only defeat their nemesis, if they could finally wipe out those assholes who are standing in their way, they could put in place the programs that America really needs and everything would be great, right? (laughs) Get rid of those pesky Democrats, get rid of those pesky Republicans, and we could build a utopia in America without the meddling of the other side. Well, here's the weird thing about that deep down assumption. See, one party rule actually happens all the time in this country. Not nationally, but in our states and cities. States in which a single party controls both chambers of the legislature and the governorship are all over the place. There are 23 states with a Republican trifecta and 13 states with a Democratic one. In Mississippi, every statewide office is held by a Republican. And in California, where I live, every major statewide office is occupied by a Democrat. Now, contrary to what you sometimes hear, that's not because there are no Republicans in California. In fact, there are millions of Republicans here, way more than there are in a Republican state like Wyoming, for instance. But because they are not in the majority, the Republican Party here doesn't have much power. And, you know, this is a somewhat historical anomaly. California used to go back and forth between Republican and Democratic administrations. This is the state that gave America Nixon, Reagan and Breitbart.com, yet Now it is completely controlled by Democrats. In fact, a lot of the time when you go to the polls in California, even though it's a general election, you'll be looking at two ballot lines and choosing between two Democrats because no Republican at all is running for the seat. It is pretty wild. So you would think that with that total of a Democratic victory in this state, that Democrats would be able to enact their will, right? Put all those progressive programs that they want to put in place nationally in place locally. Uh, Paid family leave, affordable housing, uh, you know, reforming policing, all those big ticket objectives. Well, they should be able to get them done here in California, right? Well, that doesn't actually seem to be happening at all. See, what if I told you that contrary to what a lot of partisans believe, that single-party rule can actually be a bad thing for enacting that party's stated goals. That when you control all of government, it actually makes it harder to get the shit you want to do done. It sounds like a paradox, but it appears to be true, especially in America's cities. In fact, one-party rule can literally end up unmooring democracy. But why? 
Why does this happen? And what can we do about it? Well, to discuss our guest today is Stan Aklubgia. He's a visiting professor at UC Riverside School of Public Policy, and he recently wrote a fantastic essay about this topic called America Cities Need Multi-Party Democracy. This was a fascinating conversation. I know you're going to love it. Please welcome Stan Aklubgia. Stan, thank you so much for being here. Hey, cool. Thanks for having me. So you wrote a fantastic piece in the newsletter Slow Boring uh, a while back about why it is so hard for cities like Los Angeles, where I live, where you live, but also cities across the country to enact the kind of policies that their citizens actually want. you got citizens saying, we want to end housing segregation. We want just to take one example. And then the people in charge end up putting in policies that that either perpetuate or further those problems. Why is that? What is the systemic problem in our cities? Well, I mean, there's really no one singular answer to this. But I mean, in cities, we have a sort of different electoral system that's evolved over the decades, right? Since a lot of the reforms around the turn of the century leading up until now. And so we've kind of gone on this path dependency of really sort of using antiquated institutions that don't really reflect the modern realities on the ground, right? So when people end up in the voting booth, um, the way they vote and the way politicians sort of look to their preferences and try to translate those into policy is a bit discombobulated. And I think we all mm. like, you know, see the results. So you're saying that like the the literal structure of the election system, you're talking about what stuff like the number of seats there are, who they represent, stuff like what day the election is on, those sorts of structural issues. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, these are the sort of things we like in academia call political institutions, right? These sort of rules and norms that govern, um, you know, our governing bodies and such. So, yeah, you brought up the idea of um, the day the election is on, right? So me and you live in Los Angeles, and we just recently changed over to what's called on-cycle elections, right? So elections time up with the presidential calendar. I mean, previously, these elections were in off years. You know, people weren't really paying attention to them. I mean, yeah, it would be like the year that there wasn't a presidential or a congressional election. It would be like 2000, like 2013, when people are like, I don't even have to think about voting for another two <laughs> years. And like some random day in October or whatever, there's there's an election for one of the most important offices in your city. No, and that's exactly right. So, I mean, you know, Everyone's busy. Everyone has their life to live. And then all of a sudden there's an election. And so, you know, people with crammed schedules are expected to become sort of experts in a whole slew of candidates with really out without really any cues to guide their vote. And Mm. so what happens is, you know, just the most high propensity voters, the people with the um, sort of most interest in the system end up. You're talking about cranky old people. Well, I mean, you know, you said it, not me. Um, <laughs> yeah, people are like, I heard what there's a new building going up and I don't like it. Like those sorts of, you know, I saw a man walking his dog and I've never seen him before. Like these these sort of people. Yeah, the sort of neighborhood character block, right? That uh, <laughs> sort of want to encase their neighborhood like those uh, mosquitoes in Jurassic Park and Amber to sort of live forever in perpetuity. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's one such constituency, but there's a lot of sort of special interest groups and a lot of people that are really highly motivated to keep government a certain way. And those right. are the people that make the time to turn out. 
And so, I mean, in Los Angeles, we moved to on cycle, which meant that now our, I believe, like our local city council elections are always lined up with either the presidential election or the big midterm election. So that means that's the election that everybody is normally keyed into the average, I mean, less than we'd like in America, but still at least like 50% of the voting public is like really energized and they're a lot easier to reach and they're more likely to show up. And that's like a way that uh, the elections have become more democratic in Los Angeles. But there's a lot of uh, there's uh, there's still a lot of structures that are that are uh, opposed to that direction that are still anti-democratic. Yeah, absolutely. So that's just one big example. And California as a state has moved towards putting things on cycle. So when the news media is talking about elections, when you're seeing things about Congress and the presidency and stuff, you're kind of in the voting frame of mind you're also voting in municipal elections here. State, um, it's not the case in every state, but here in California, we've made that switch. Um, but there's other sort of structures too. You know, like in the United States, we sort of form our idea of what is like a faction, what is like an interest, right? Around geography. Mm-hmm. So it kind of comes to this, you know, idea from the founding of the country that like a person has person's largest identity and greatest loyalty is to their state and to their town and such, right? Mm -hmm. So we really structure our politics in this fashion. But a lot has changed in America since then, right? So someone's interests and someone's identity, sort of the people they identify with and sort of the causes they champion could have to do with someone across town or even someone in a different city. But here in Los Angeles and in most other American cities, you're sort of drawn into a district and that district is supposed to represent all your interest. But you know, in a multi-ethnic city like Los Angeles, right? So many different people are living next to each other, right? There's really not that sort of common identity. And so this type of situation kind of, um, it, it kind of like, it kind of muddies the pot a bit. Yeah. I mean, you're right because we, especially because we so often look at politics through the lens of national politics, red States, blue States, uh, red counties, blue cities, you know, we sort of assume, oh, everybody in a single place, everybody in New York City, everybody in Chicago, everybody in, you know, uh, the a rural part of North Dakota, everybody, those people must all have the same interests. But that's just like not true. Like in the neighborhood where I live, there's like five million dollar mansions and there are apartments that are, you know, extremely, you know, dense uh, apartments with, you know, where you've got working class people renting within like three or four miles of each other and certainly within the same district. And those people to a certain extent have different, if not competing interests, like the the rich homeowner says, I don't want any new buildings built. Whereas the poor folks say, please, for the love of God, we need affordable housing. Right. And they're being represented by the same person. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly right. And that's a perfect example of the sort of like conflict of interest within one little piece of ground. I mean, Mm. um, and, you know, to to a certain other extent, people live in the city as a whole. I mean, you probably don't work in the same district where you live. Your friends don't all live Mm. in whatever council district you're at. I mean, we experience a city like Los Angeles as a series of places. I mean, I myself, I live in Los Angeles. I work in Riverside. So I'm traveling through all sorts right. of different polities on my way to the office every day. Or um, like what about, you know, in New York, 
I lived in Brooklyn. I worked in Manhattan. I spent half, literally 12 hours a day in Manhattan because I would go work. I'd do comedy. I took the subway there. And those things are not like uh, I can't affect. I, I guess I got to vote for mayor, too. But, you know, my my local election was only for the place where I basically went to sleep, which is mm-hmm. a little it's a little <laughs> weird. Yeah. That's absolutely right. I mean, you probably had a lot of interests like in this part of Manhattan where you were working, maybe where you did your shows, where you went out Mm -hmm. to eat, where your friends lived, you know, but you can cast one vote and that's where you lay your head at night, even if it's not like where you're spending the majority of your time. Yeah. Okay. That (laughs) that's a very, it's a very fundamental thing. uh, Part of American democracy to unravel though, because it is like just built in. Yeah. You vote where you live and that's all you, that you vote for. But that's true. That's like a really unexamined assumption of the system that like doesn't make a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it is <laughs> right. I mean, this is sort of like a big philosophical point, right? I mean, eventually you have to sort of organize your political institutions around something. But, you know, there are other ways that are done around the world that sort of take this location based system. Right. I mean, everyone generally does it on some that sort of principle and sort of expands the type of commonalities and common interests that bring people together and let people organize their politics and their interests. So what are the what are the harms of the way that we do it, right? Like how do some of these institutions result in, before we talk about some of those better examples, or at least different examples, I don't know if we want to call them better yet, but uh, what are, you know, what are the, how, how do these institutions prevent us from seeing, you know, outcomes that we might want to see in our own cities? Yeah. So, I mean, like, for, let's, let's, let's do an example um, of here in Los Angeles, right? So, you know, I used to live in Koreatown, right, which is um, split into several council districts. But in the, in the part of town where I lived, right, I lived in a block that was primarily Spanish speakers. But if you walk a couple blocks to the south, it became a primarily Korean speaking neighborhood, right? Mm-hmm. But these people were represented by one single person, right? Yeah there wasn't sort of a way for each community to have someone representing them at the city council level, right? And you can see how this could be problematic in certain instances, right? These people have no one to sort of address complaints to. There's no one that sort of has an intimate familiarity with this community to sort of raise issues within the larger polity. And it leaves a lot of people unrepresented, which, um, you know, thinking about how we want to improve our democracy is something we should be working on. So what is the solution to that? I mean, you've got a minority in this larger district that, uh, you know, presumably can't get anybody elected all by themselves. So the the city council person barely knows that they exist, you know, Spanish speakers in Koreatown. Um, so how do we get those people representation? Right. So, I mean, what a lot of other countries have done is move towards a system called multi-member districts. And I should probably back up and explain how things work in the United States. So in America, we have generally, I mean, there are some exceptions, but generally in the overwhelming instances of cases, we have a system based on single member districts, right? There is a single representative for each piece of geography. Yeah. And so it doesn't matter really if there is a multitude of different peoples in your district, you get one person, right? And that person is elected on, there's a variety of names for this, but the most common is called first past the post voting. So Mm -hmm. whoever wins the plurality of votes, right? Not a majority, but a plurality of votes, whoever gets this the most, you know? If there's three people running and you get 34%, then you win. Yeah, exactly correct, right? Then you're the winner, right? So 
it leaves us with this problem of wasted votes, right? And so we're in a redistricting cycle right now, both congressionally, state level, and here in Los Angeles, redistricting has become this hugely contentious issue, right? And the problem with this redistricting is that you're sort of trying to work around this system of single member districts, right? And this first past the post voting. So you're trying to sort of create sort of coherent communities by drawing a line. You know, a lot of other countries have sort of got around this by just electing more than one person per district, mm. right? So rather than just a single member, you could have three, four, five members all Wait, within the is, same pieces of ground. This is mind-blowing. This is another basic assumption of American democracy that, yeah, you vote for one person. You you So you could instead have three or four people who you would who would represent you what in like a little oh kind of like you've got two senators for a state um exactly. or yeah okay got it um and i i see so how would that so how does that help the folks in koreatown well sure so let's like let's let's go back to koreatown right so you know koreatown is actually or a slice of koreatown is involved in this this really really contentious debate i mean for the listeners that aren't in los angeles um there was a woman, uh, Nithya Raman's her name, and she was one of the first people to unseat an incumbent um, in Los Angeles election. She was actually a guest on this podcast while she was while she was running, and she did eventually win. Yes. Yeah. Oh, very cool. Well, yes. I mean, she, she unseated an incumbent for the first time since 2003, right? And mm -hmm. hers was one of the first elections that was done on cycle in Los Angeles. So, I mean, 130,000 people voted in her election compared to just 24,000 the yeah. last time that that seat was open, right? And so, you know, there are groups fighting like hell right now because um, Nithya Raman's district is being broken up, right? A lot of it, it's, it's this weird sort of uh, kind of V that cuts through Los Angeles and it yeah, it's unites. already gerrymandered the hell out of it or or at least sorry maybe gerrymandering is not the technical term for what happened it's a very weird looking district when you look at you know gerrymandered congressional districts this kind of looks like that where it's all spread out this crazy shape yeah yeah exactly right I mean like it's sort of one of the the the, the um the pitfalls of having just 15 members in a city as large as Los Angeles and as diverse as Los Angeles right so I mean in Nithya Raman's district you have sort of a Los Feliz hipsters and such. Um, you mm -hmm. have a big slice of Koreatown, and then it kind of jumps up into the um, the the Sherman Oaks area. Just kind of single family homes, like your typical idea. Much more conservative area, yeah. Extremely, extremely conservative area. I mean, yeah, conservative as in like not the uh, sort of conservative on the national scale, but very sort of like we like things the way they are. Very status. I mean, quo it's life. also where folks who are conservative on the national scale, that's where they live <laughs> in Los Angeles. Like like it's it's both conservative Democrats and conservative Republicans up there. Yeah, true. I guess I guess for conservative for Los Angeles. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, everything's uh, on a spectrum, right? So <laughs> they're, like, they're like conservatives who like, you know, have a couple gay friends. You know what I mean? Like we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one of the one of the things in this, you know, uh, one of the problems of talking about this is that our language uh, in our political culture in America is so 
focused on the national that we always feel the need to say, oh, well, they're conservatives. In the, not in this. When like we're, we're talking about these are people in city politics, they vote conservatively, you know, and it's but it's difficult for us to say that because we are so wedded to this national view. They're like conservatives locally, even though they j- voted for Joe Biden, whoever else. Um, but, you know, on city politics, that's what they are. Sorry, go on. I, I cut you off. No, no, no. That's, that's such a really good point to bring up. Yeah. Like people like sort of conservatism expressed itself differently, depending on the context. So, you know, Nithya Raman's district is being broken up and a lot of it is trying to sort of redraw this old base that she had of renters, of progressive activists. I know a lot of my friends in a group called Ground Game LA are working really hard against this redistricting because they were the people that got um, council member Raman into office in the first place. Right. But this is sort of illustrating this folly of um, the land-based system of voting, right? Because you have to draw a line around certain constituencies in order to get some sort of representation, you know, you can disenfranchise these people just simply by shifting a border mm-hmm. up or down. Yeah, um, well, that's the same thing that happens on the congressional level with with gerrymandering. And it happens in our cities, too. It's happening in the city. It's By the way, if you're listening, I, I know we're talking about Los Angeles a lot. This is probably happening in the city that you live in. You probably just don't know about it because your local newspaper was closed because of Facebook and you're very busy and you have a lot of time in your hands and nobody's writing about this. Um, so, you know, this is it is a weird perversity that, that this happens. So how would how would multi-member districts solve this problem? Yeah, right. So, I mean, the big thing to think about is that people's primary allegiance isn't just as some piece of ground, right? There's stronger identities that cut across geography and unite Mm. people that might be living in disparate parts of the city. So one of the ways in which moving to multi-member districts and electing people along a system of proportional representation, which we haven't talked about yet, but is sort of the way of um, a lot of uh, European democracies, um, how they allocate um, seats in a legislative body, right? So one of the advantages of this system of allocating a number of seats based on the proportion of votes you get in an election is it sort of breaks this stranglehold that two parties have on, um, on, on legislative contests, right? So given a system that allows more parties to flourish right people have these better voting cues and so you can sort of form these larger slates right mm-hmm. to sort of attract voters given different sort of bents different interests and that sort of thing right and so like for example you could start to have um, a slate of candidates all organizing around renters rights in los angeles right so we're mm-hmm. the renter party and so renters, right, an identity that cuts across, you know, not just one little piece of land. Yeah. These sort of people can look at a ballot, see renters party and say, oh, this is the party for me. Check it. And depending on if they get over a certain threshold, they can have a person representing them within their district. Right. There's a person that they could turn to to redress their most basic complaints. I see. So maybe in a big district like. CD4, that's the one that I live in, the one that Nithya Raman represents, where you've got 
you got the rich homeowners and you've got the hipsters and then you've got the you know you got folks in Koreatown. You have an ethnic enclave that has its own interests and concerns, right? That's and these are very different places physically, you know, uh, across the district. You've got the rich mansions in the hills, you've got the folks in Silver Lake and you've got, you know, Koreatown's a totally different sort of physical area with different economic profile. Each of those areas would get you know, there, oh, there could be the renter party, there could be the hipster party, and there could be the rich fucko party, right? <laughs> and each one, each one of them gets a, uh, you know, if each of them gets X percentage of the vote, they each get one representative for the district. Um, and they can sort of, what, form a coalition, maybe the, maybe the hipster and the Korean, <laughs> the Korean representative <laughs> get together on a particular issue they both like, uh... <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and uh, and they, they sort of a little bit closer to what the way parliamentary democracies work or. No, that's exactly right. So, I mean, OK, it creates a system in which you really are forced to f- have compromise between these parties. Right. What we have mm-hmm. in Los Angeles right now is just single party dominance. Everyone in Los Angeles is a Democrat. I know John Lee, um, a representative up in the valley, is a no party preference. He uh, was previously a Republican, but. I guess that's not cool anymore. So he is um, no party listed, but you really just have one party in um, in Los Angeles politics. And you can see this kind of creates a problem, right? Because our system of electoral accountability is precipiced on this idea that when the party in power is, is, isn't doing well, right? And it isn't sort of working for you, you throw the bums out, right? Yeah. And you put the other party in power, but you don't have this in Los Angeles. Everyone's a Democrat by default. And so as a result- yeah you really don't have a cue except for learning about a certain candidate, right? Like kind of becoming encyclopedic, which a lot of people don't have the capacity for. Well, and there's, man, there's so many problems with that. I mean, first of all, let's just acknowledge there's Republicans in Los Angeles and perhaps those folks could have some representation as well. You know what I mean? Like if you're a Democrat in Los Angeles, you're like, yeah, fuck them. But like, I mean, in reality, I think we would want some amount of representation for like having minority representation of all types is like important in in democracy. Um, that's one thing. But then, yeah, for another, it's like you end up with this weird uh, like belief or this weird artifice that all the candidates are somehow identical because they're all Democrats. So it's like, you know, every single candidate in or let's see every single politician in Los Angeles who are all Democrats they're all members of the Democratic Party they all said yes Joe Biden is so good and I support gay rights and da 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 and all on all those national issues they're basically claiming to be identical um but when in reality their actual positions on things that affect the city things like homelessness things like uh construction things like transportation they have wildly different uh, uh positions but Nobody has the tools to talk about that. They they literally don't even bring up their positions. So they're just like, I'm a Democrat. I love Democratic shit. But it's all national that they're like, I'm for gun control. Yeah, who gives a shit? <laughs> we're, we're talking about we're talking about uh, you know whether or not affordable housing should be constructed, which is not part of the National Democratic Party platform. So you end up with this weird situation where a Democrat runs against a Democrat and they have trouble even. They're like, I'm the progressive. No, I'm the progressive. And like the one that actually is progressive or conservative on a city level has trouble even explaining how different they are because nobody even has the vocabulary and there's no party apparatus. There's no block of people that's saying, okay, we're going to pick the best affordable housing person, you know, for the affordable housing party. Cause there's just one 
party. There's only one apparatus. Um, so it means that like, yeah, we end up with no choice at all. No, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And so, you know, it really puts this sort of undue burden, and I think anti-democratic burden on voters, right? So in order to figure out how to best vote your preferences, you need to become encyclopedic about a certain candidate, right? Yeah. You need to know like their positions on this, what they said five years ago, et cetera, et cetera. And then you have to do this for every single candidate for office, right? So you have to do yeah. this for your assembly member. You have to do this for your member of the state Senate, right? And on and on and on. Oh, but- I... Uh, yeah. And it's impossible to do that. Like I, okay. So like I follow local politics. I have over the last couple of years, I've become encyclopedic about it. And the problem is it's something I can't expect other people to do. You know, like I was talking to a friend who lives in a different district than me. And, um, she was like, Oh yeah, we have a really good councilwoman. I saw like an ad for her. And I was like, no, actually, she's really bad. <laughs> like, I know your values and I know that your council person does not agree with your values, but it's going to take me half an hour to explain to you why, <laughs> because it's not covered in any paper. There's no party running against her. Um, I just have to go through and go, like, OK, so like six months ago, she did this thing. And then she said she was going to do that thing, but she did this thing instead. And then, you know, she betrayed this constituency and all these people got really mad at her and blah, blah, blah. And it's like overwhelming to have to explain this individually to every single voter when this person is just in the district going, hey, I'm a good Democrat. And everyone goes, "Okay, well, that seems good to me. No, that's exactly right. And I mean, like, you know, it's a very inefficient way of doing things, too. Right. You only have so much time in your day. You can't go and explain to every single person in Los Angeles, you know, everything there is to know. There was a really important study on this done about 30 years ago by a political scientist then at the University of California, San Diego. Uh, Arthur Lupia is his name. And the paper was called Shortcuts versus Encyclopedias, right? So um, uh, Dr. Lupia looked at a series of competing ballot initiatives for insurance reform in California, something really esoteric that no one Mm -hmm. really has much idea about. And so what he showed was that sort of just kind of summarizing the paper People could vote their deepest held preference, right? If you surveyed them, asked them about their positions on everything, they could vote almost perfectly accurate just by looking at which group endorsed, right? Or which politician endorsed which position on this insurance reform versus actually sitting down with the text of the law and, you know, a legal expert there explaining all the minutia and jargon to them, right? And becoming this encyclopedia about it, right? This shortcut is just about as efficient. Mm. And this is what I, where I think parties can step in. I think party cues are an extremely valuable shortcut for voters, right? And it helps them sort of organize their preferences and it helps them sort of see, okay, I can just look at a ballot and see renter party or rich fucko party if you happen to be a rich fucko. <laughs> and then look, this is me. This is my person here. Bang, you hit him, hit him with, a, with a vote and you're good. But okay, so why don't we have parties like that on a local? I mean, I understand why, you know, my I've done television about it before, about how on a national level, when you have first past the post voting, it creates uh, it creates an incentive to have just two parties, like sort of mathematically, game theoretically, everything boils down and you end up with two parties. It's very hard for a third party to get a foothold. Is the same true locally? Is that the deal? 
Yeah, that's that's exactly it, right? So well, I always I always love it when my guests when my guests say, as you say often, that's exactly right. That's why I have the podcast. That is, in fact, I should rename the podcast. That's exactly right, Adam. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. Please go on. Explain it to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, just here validating you. No, but um, the system works sort of like this. There's a sort of axiom in political science called Duverger's law. And it's named after this French sociologist, uh, Maurice Duverger. Um, it's not exactly a law. I know a bunch of you know you're, the five political scientists that are listening to this right now are going to quibble about how actually set and concrete it is. <laughs> but you know, like uh, that's for our personal conferences. That's why we're so much fun. Um, <laughs> but having first passed the post voting, where the plurality winner wins the election, right? Having these winner take all elections, and having these single member districts really um, sort of penalizes third parties because third parties become vote wasters, right? Mm -hmm. So if you vote for one of these parties and they have no shot of getting in, then essentially you're just throwing your vote away. It doesn't really matter, right? I mean, you could be voting a sincerely held preference. There's a lot of other reasons to vote, but most people are voting instrumentally, right? You want someone in there that shares your beliefs about yeah. something. I mean, the Talk about the, you know, the Green Party in the, you know, the 2000 election um, and the 2004 election. Basically what happened to that party, there was a real desire among a lot of people to have a more left wing party, especially because the Democratic Party was much more of a right wing party at the time. But I mean, it's exactly the dialogue that you saw happen where people would say, well, vote for Ralph Nader. No, if you vote for Ralph Nader, you're throwing away your vote. And then Ralph Nader gets blamed for uh, George W. Bush being elected. And whether you agree with that blame or don't agree with that blame, the fact that people are having that argument and saying, no, you have to vote strategically and vote for Gore instead. That's that is making it less possible for a Green Party to flourish, to have a. And that would happen basically anytime you have a third party. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, there was a similar sort of thing around the Tea Party movement of 2010 with, with libertarian Republicans. Right. Do you mm. vote for the libertarian or do you throw your vote away um, or should you not throw your vote away and just kind of give it to a Republican candidate, even though their beliefs about, I don't know, a variety of whatever libertarian things don't really mesh with yours, right? Yeah. But there's sort of a flip side to that as well. And that's in this system, it makes sense for parties to sort of expand their platform to swallow up these voters. So, you know, the Democratic Party loses all these green votes um, in 2000 and to a lesser extent in 2004. But at the same time, the Democratic Party sort of expands what is acceptably Democrat, right? If you look at the Democratic Party's uh, positions on immigration in the 90s, like they're almost analogous to a lot of, you know, conservative Republican positions on immigration right now. It's completely changed. I mean, like, look at Hillary Clinton's speech on immigration in the 2016 Democratic Convention, right? It's strategic. Parties exist to win elections and get partisans into office. And so these parties sort of expand their issue platforms until they can grab up those third party voters. Right. And mm -hmm. that sort of leads this two party stasis. That's the essence mm. of Duverger's law. Got it. Um, so is there, oh, wait, okay, I'm sorry. We have to take a quick break because I really, really want to find out if there's a way to break this law when it comes to uh, our local cities. But we got to take a really quick break. We'll be right back with more Stan at Club Gia. We're back with Stan at Club Gia. Stan, so you've been explaining how multi-member districts and proportional elections 
would be much better for our cities. Uh, but I got to say, I've been around for a while. I've heard a lot of, hey, it sure would be better to vote this or that way. Um, and, you know, a lot of a lot of pie in the sky election theorizing. I always worried that if I go to school for political science, this is what I would do is I would just find out about a lot of theoretically great voting systems. How the hell do we implement any of these? Well, I mean, you know, there's, you know, a lot of different ways that you can sort of push reform, right? Um, it'd be a little bit naive to think that the incumbents that benefit from our current system would just sort of voluntarily cede their grasp on, grasp on, grasp on power and just uh, kind of, you know, do the right thing for mm -hmm. America. It's a very, like, uh, I don't know, West Wing vision of politics. But here in California, we do have an initiative process, right? A city can change its charter if a majority of voters wish to see it done. Um, so that's one avenue if you're in a state with this sort of progressive, I mean, progressive in the turn of the turn of the 20th century version um, set of political institutions where you can put a thing on a ballot and uh, make big structural reform that way. And there are initiatives in states other than California. California is famous for having an initiative process, but there's initiatives in, I know, Michigan. Like, how, do you know how many how many states have initiative or ballot measures like that? Oof, I believe it's about 23 of the 50 states. Well, that's, um, that's almost half. It's yeah, not bad. Yeah. There's 50, right? Yeah, 23. So, yes, almost half. <laughs> no, exactly right. So, I mean, like, California is the real big initiative machine, but Colorado, Oregon, Washington are all big initiative states. Nevada has it, and a lot of sort of um, big legislation, um, really consequential legislation in a lot of these states have come via the ballot box. Got it. So we could potentially, if we want, if we build support for multi-member districts, like put that on a ballot initiative and really try to, uh, I don't know, yeah, get get it, get the public to have their say on it. Um, but I don't know. I still have the concern that like, you know, so much of the time our political system is driven by the folks who are trying to keep everything the same. Right. The the wealthy folks who don't want to see affordable housing be built are still in control of so many of our local governments across the country. Right. Um, and those people are a lot better at organizing uh, and they're able to get a lot defeated and they might not like this proposal, right? Because it reduces their power. They're like, hold on a second. I don't want multi-member districts because currently our single member is the white wealthy homeowner like me. <laughs> so uh, I don't want multi-member districts. I don't want those folks in Koreatown getting their candidate in. Um, and they can mobilize against it and, and, you know, raise money to run ads against it. And, you know, those folks are powerful. I mean, we had a ton of really great ballot initiatives defeated in California, delete, you know, uh, just last year. So, I mean, how do we overcome that? Yeah. So, I mean, like there is a history of voters and large coalitions overcoming these really like entrenched structural biases. So I'm a political scientist, and I have to say that these are a very bad thing, and we should do away with them. But a great example of this is term limits, right? Mm. Term limits was an extremely anti-incumbent um, uh, movement, right? Um, it was very unpopular amongst entrenched interest groups, and it passed. And it passed not just in California, but via the initiative process around the West. Oh, okay. So there was uh, – I actually never thought of this. There's a time at which there were no term limits – and then people were like, this is fucking bullshit. We've got, you know, Mr. 
Bill Fucko. <laughs> I keep going for the same stupid, the same reaching for the same stupid name. Bill Fucko's been in there fifty years, and he's a pawn of the whatever interests, and and we gotta get we got and we gotta institute term limits. And then what? There was just like a populist uprising around term limits. Yeah, sort of. I mean, populist with big quotes. I mean, there was a sort of like a, I don't know conservative. Um, underswell kind of a, a little kind of overtone of this mm-hmm. movement but yeah i mean i i personally think term limits are a horrible idea they just oh really our lobbyists yeah and special interests really prevent the development of expertise amongst elected officials and their staff um whoa wait that's really interesting little parenthetical i just want to hear a little bit more about that because yeah you would i would think that with well, the vision that i just laid out where you've got someone running something for like way too long um, would be a, I would think that would be a problem that, that would be real, but you actually find the other, what, what is this other problem that you think is worse? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, um, sort of empirical research on this, but essentially a member of an elected body never really has the chance to develop expertise, right? So mm. all expertise has to be farmed out and mm. those places where it's farmed out are lobbying groups. They're interest groups, right? You can't learn about the minutia of, I don't know, tax policy or something like that in just a couple of years. It's impossible, Mm. right? Your staff absolutely cannot develop this sort of expertise. So you just call up some group or a lobbyist shows up in your office and says, hey, let me explain it for you. Let me down for you, right? So here's a analysis of this bill. You know, we're doing this out of the goodness of our heart. And really that sort of uh, structure kind of overwhelms the legislative process. That's really interesting. But but wait, I, I can I can really see it both ways because okay, like let me just I've been getting more and more involved in union democracy, right? I'm in two unions. Um uh one of the unions I'm a member of uh, I'm actually on the board of directors now, I should say. I won an election for it, right? Um, and the term limit for the presidency of the union is four years, which is short, right? And I can totally see that problem that, you know, the president is only there for four years before a new president has to come in. They have to learn the ropes. And that empowers people like the staff members of the union who are there for, you know, decades and decades. And so maybe now the elected representative of the membership doesn't get their say, right? So I understand your argument there. But on the other hand, there's another union in town uh, called IATSE. That's the, uh, the the union that represents the camera crews and basically basically all the crews, right? Uh, makeup and hair and costumes and the grips and all those people, right? And the president of that union, I, I'm actually not sure. I don't believe there's term limits because I believe the same dude's been running it since 2008 or 2009, right? And so I'm looking at that going now a lot of I'm hearing a lot of members of that union saying, hold on a second. How do we create change? This guy is so entrenched that we are having trouble changing the leadership of the union that we don't feel represented. Yet this dude is like so entrenched that we can't get him out of there because he's just been working the levers of power for so long. Right. Um, I can see that as being the opposite problem where you get the you get the boss of Tammany Hall effect where you just get this like person who's a who's a king and can never be removed. Is that not a concern? Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, you do have like this sort of boss tweed thing, but I think the, the solution to that, and it's the reason I've become so in favor of multi-member districts and proportional representation, not just in cities like Los Angeles, but across the country, um, is to make better election rules, right? Make democratic accountability stronger such that if a person does want to stay in office, they have more to fear from voters throwing them out. They can't just manipulate rules. They can't sort of rely on this incumbency effect and sort of this overwhelming information um, bias that sort of prevents people from seeing actually like, you know, that their interests aren't being represented and taking appropriate action to kick them out of office. So I don't really just, know. About, 
so we come up with other methods for uh, for the to make sure that they're being responsive. Like basically, no term limits, but we make it a lot easier to kick them out so that uh, you know they they are really incentivized to like keep keep their ear to the ground and be representing their their constituents. No, that's exactly right, and I think sort of creating conditions where you can have more parties allows for mm. better democracy, right? These shifting coalitions that have to form in order for government to function in these sort of systems, it creates a better system of democratic accountability, right? There's a, a political scientist at Drexel University, his name's Jack Santucci. He has a, a book coming out about this, um, sort of showing that, um, you know, electoral systems producing more parties sort of has these like better outcomes on democracy. Yeah. But OK, so uh, let's say that I agree with you that that more parties are better for democracy. Um, unfortunately, a lot of people don't like parties or politicians. Right. There's like a gut reaction that people have to like, I don't like politicians. I don't like political parties. Less would be better. Right. And that seems like that would be a barrier to us doing a ballot initiative that says, hey, we need more political part. If I go to people in California, hey, vote yes or no, create a system with more political parties and three times as many politicians. Oh, no, hold on. I'll explain to you. I'll explain to you why this is good. No, no, I know. I know. It sounds like I'm I'm telling you to, like, create more lawyers in the world or something like that. But no, in fact, this would be good for you. It seems like a tough sell. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't know what the latest approval figures on Congress, but I think like cockroaches and like communism had a higher <laughs> approval rating than than Congress the last time I looked. But yeah, you know, there is something for everybody in this system. If you were to expand a city council like Los Angeles or wherever you live, right? Los Angeles is just particularly bad in the number of constituents per representative. If you expanded the number of elected officials you created a system where more than one person could represent a piece of geography, and you allocated those seats by proportional representation via a whole variety of systems, there could be, and there probably would be, if you have like sort of a semi-mainstream political bent to you, there could be someone, there could be an entire party representing you and your interests in, 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 on a city council, right? You mean literally um, just me, Adam, like the Adam party and they just represent me personally. Well, I don't know the tenants of the Adam party, but you seem like a pretty <laughs> normal guy. So I'm going to go out on. Oh land. no, don't you know. don't know. If you give me power, you don't know what I would, what I would put in place, man. I don't know if you want to see that situation. Uh, we'd all be wearing pants on our heads. Okay. No, uh, <laughs> you, you mean I, I could be more directly represented by someone who like, really like, I, like I love, I'm a, you know, I'm, I, 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 there'd be like an urbanism party. That's all about building bike lanes that I could join. You're talking about that kind of thing. No, absolutely. Right. So, I mean, I got into this, like sort of electoral systems aren't really my forte. Um, they weren't really this thing that kind of got me into academia. Like this came from doing housing activism for a while, um, trying to fix the housing crisis in Los Angeles and across California. And it, we keep butting up against the exact same thing, right? Like these political institutions constrain progress. Um, but you don't have to just be a housing activist. You don't have to just be someone that's into housing, right? If you're, for example, like a democratic socialist, right? There's a reason why left parties don't really exist to the extent that they do in Europe here in the United States, right? It has to do a lot with how people concentrate in areas, right? The fact that, you know, it's unviable for a small group of people representing sort of, you know, an interest that is, you know, 
um, is real and it's held by many people, but will never kind of win a plurality um, is a reason why these people never get any representation. Um, there's a really great book by a professor of political science from Stanford named Jonathan Rodden called Why Cities Lose, which I encourage everyone mm. sort of in one of these left movements to read and see just sort of how the geography of where factories are located and how it just kind of compacts workers together into one area, how that created two separate political realities in Europe mm. versus the United States just based on the rules of elections. But wait, okay, look, I don't know that much about uh, uh, European politics. I do know that there are that there are left wing parties, but I also know that there's like right wing racist, just like avowedly racist parties, just parties like we are for white people and we want to kick out anybody who is not white and we want to kill them all. And like and they and, and like the, when I hear political news out of Europe, it's always like, oh, no, one of those parties is winning. It's never like, oh, the 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 idealistic left wingers who want to build all the bike lanes won. Right. It's always like, uh oh, here comes Hitler, too. <laughs> in France or whatever. So is that not a little bit of a concern? I mean, you know, cause we have had, I gotta say, you know, the two party system in America did sort of squelch out, you know, a lot of like avowedly racist, you know, like David Duke, you know, couldn't, didn't have a party to represent him for a long time. He's like, couldn't, couldn't buy a, an endorsement, you know, as a result of our two party system. So uh, is that a concern at all from systems like this? Well, I have to shout out a friend of mine, Lee Drutman at the New America Institute, who wrote a great book called The Two-Party Doom Loop, which everyone should really check out. It's a fantastic book. And if you're interested in um, proportional representation and sort of these reforms nationally, like it's a fantastic place. You to seem start. like a guy who reads a lot faster than than me. And most you're like, and you should read this one and read this one. And they're really great. I'm like, OK, man, I, you've already given me nine months of assigned reading, <laughs> but they sound great. These sound terrific. Um, please, please go on. Please go on. It's, it's why you make the big bucks in academia. Right. Um, <laughs> no. So um, the thing with, uh, you know, the far right parties in Europe, and Lee writes about this a lot in his book and in other um, in other sort of venues, is that these far right parties um, do exist, right? And they exist with sort of platforms, explicit platforms that are horrendous. I mean, to the average American. But the way proportional representation works in these part in in these electoral systems, sort of relegates a lot of them to the fringe, right? Mm. So. One of the problems we have and are currently having in the United States is that, you know, we do have far right authoritarian white nationalist parties in America. Mm. They're just subsumed within the current Republican Party. And mm. given how you don't need a majority of voters to win power in the United States, right? You can be a president with three million fewer votes. You can hold the Senate by representing 40 million fewer people. It gives a lot more agency to these elements that would be more fringe given a more representative system of government. Wow, because those it's basically the same way that in a city like L.A. where everyone is a Democrat or every elected official is a Democrat, you can have people who are actually you know, very opposed to democratic values, but they're running as a Democrat because they're just like under this label and they're just sort of subsumed within it. That That's how you end up with white nationalist Republicans, whereas instead if they had their own party that everyone could just sort of like spit and throw tomatoes at, <laughs> right? If that's where the white nationalists were, then they would be like perhaps a little more easily marginalized rather than just sort of like waltzing their way into Congress. 
So if you live in rural Georgia, right, and you're deciding who to vote for for Congress, right, and let's say you're a kind of a conservative voter, you know, you're a religious person, um, you sort of have a set of traditional values or whatever, right, you don't have to vote for someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene because there would be an alternative conservative party for you. She mm. would be represented by sort of this fringe white nationalist element. And it sort of kind of inoculates the body politic in that way. Yeah. Okay. All right. But like, okay, again, you, you so I said, how do we get this instituted? Right. Um, and you said, well, Hey, there's something in there for everybody, but that's like, once you explain it to them, <laughs> you know, how do we, how do we actually, uh, you know, if, if I want to in my city or the city of someone listening, like, okay, great. I want multi-member districts and I want some kind of structure that fosters multiple parties. Um, how do we, you know, what's the, what's the next step to, to putting it in place? Well, I mean, every city is going to be different. Every city has its own unique cultures, its own unique rules and that sort of thing. But I think this discontent with the state of city politics is a really good place to start because I don't think there's many people out there in the United States that sort of look at their city. They look at like the homelessness crisis. They look at the skyrocketing cost of housing. They look at unaccountable police forces, right, who won't even submit to the most basic health requirements. And they don't see this as something good and something really worth preserving, right? So there is this growing appetite for reform mm -hmm. in America. And I think, you know, if we sort of realize that despite, you know, maybe having different policy goals, right? Like maybe I'm a pro-housing person and someone else wants to have um, sort of a police force that doesn't monopolize the entire city budget. Um, maybe there's even a rich fucko who wants a good thing or two. <laughs> yeah, we I mean, I, get... I'm a rich fucko and I want some good stuff. <laughs> yeah, sure. So we like, you know, our, our interests align and we realize we have more to gain helping each other out, right? And sort of more to gain by having a more inclusive system than just this broken status quo. Okay. All right. All right. It's still, it's still at the end of the day, I was gonna say, well, it's still a hearts and minds approach at the end of the day, but I guess, I guess that's what it has to be. There's just going to be those people who are saying, who, who are fighting against it tooth and nail, you know, but okay. Let me ask you, let me put it this way instead. Sometimes there are thaws in our election structure, like, Actually, let me even take it further back than that. Something that I've come to realize through talking to you and through talking to other folks like you is that we really underappreciate how important like political structure is in America, that we talk about a democracy. Hey, just go vote, go vote your choice. And that's how things will get better. But like we we really neglect the degree to which our choices are sort of pre-made by the structure, democratic structure that we live in. And that like, we really could change the structure to one that's better. That would be more representative. And until we do, we will never have representative. It doesn't matter. Maybe we'll have one good one for a term or two, but you know, it'll be, we'll have a, we'll have over and over again, people who don't represent our values and we'll be frustrated. Um, and so we need to make these changes and yet it seems so difficult, but over the last year, there have been a couple thaws in this, like uh, New York City, I believe, went for uh, what is it? Uh, oh, what's it called? Um, instant runoff voting. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, which is uh, uh, allows people to express a preference beyond first past the post. Actually, explain how that works. Yeah. So instant runoff voting is um, a way of ranking your preferences for a candidate. You're still operating within a single member district, but it sort of helps get rid of this wasted vote um, problem, right? So 
you can say that um, I would want the Green Party candidate or whatever as my first choice. But even if you know that person has no chance of winning, you can still put um, the sort of Democrat or whatever underneath, right? So when a person no longer becomes viable, their first um, they become ineligible, and then their second choice moves up to first. Right? Yeah. Yeah, so you can vote for, okay, I'm going to vote for Ralph Nader first and then Hillary Clinton, but, uh, well, Ralph Nader didn't run against Hillary Clinton, but let's just imagine that they, that he did. Uh, <laughs> and and Hillary Clinton second, and then once Ralph Nader gets only 10% of the vote or whatever, he's knocked off, and now they count your second vote. Um, and so it's a way of, like, being able to vote for who you really give a shit about uh, without having to strategically, uh, you know, change your vote to somebody else. Yeah, that's exactly it, right? And so, I mean, you can sort of modify instant runoff voting for a proportional representation a proportional representation system. It's a system called single transferable vote. So you're essentially doing the exact same thing, ranking candidates, but instead of just having one winner, you have multiple winners, mm. right? And depending on the manner in which single transferable vote is implemented, either people become unviable or people take seats, and then the second choices are distributed sort of yeah. um, along some sort of formula to the other candidates. So so New York actually implemented instant runoff voting. And then in L.A., they actually did change the date of the election from, you know, some weirdo day in, you know, an off, off, off year where nobody showed up except for all the cranky olds and the rich fuckos. And instead, they made it line up, which completely changed the electorate. And it actually resulted in an incumbent being unseated for the first time ever and could happen more. It's I think I would have to say it's made it more likely for incumbents to be unseated overall across Los Angeles. Um, and the people who are the incumbents actually decided to make that change. Uh, and so why, <laughs> why, <laughs> w w you know, what caused, I guess what I'm curious to know is what, what caused in both of those, these old sclerotic democratic systems controlled by a single party in New York and LA, what caused the people who run that system to go, you know what, we should actually make a better change, even though it didn't necessarily benefit those individual politicians to do so. State preemption, right? I mean, so a lot of these changes were forced on cities. I mean, not forced, but kind of maybe cudgeled along, but in some cases actually forced by state legislation, right? Mm. You know, it's one of the benefits of American federalism is we have these sort of bodies that rule over other bodies, right? And sort of create a set of ground rules by which all local governments would have to exist, right? So I mean, yeah. a lot of housing activism is done at the state level because you're never going to go convince like Santa Monica or Newport Beach or Cupertino to like, hey, maybe it would be nice if you built mm -hmm. housing that non-millionaires could live in. I don't know, yeah. just a thought, right? So you sort of cudgel them along with state regulations, right? So a lot of these reforms could also be implemented by state bodies as well. It creates a better system and a more equitable and representative system for local governments, um, which I think um, personally is would be in the interest of the state to pursue. It's another um, avenue for activists is what, I should, what I'm saying. Is there a are there any brewing movements to do any of these things in, in places across like our, our multi member districts? Do they exist anywhere in America today? Well, they do. Um, there's a uh, sort of um, system of at large representation. Right. So um, many people will represent a city as a whole. Um, I don't know if that's my preferred and that would run afoul of the California Voter Rights Act here. But what you could do is sort of have like kind of compromise systems where you create um, districts that inc uh, incorporate communities of color and certain other protected communities as defined by the California Voting Rights Act and simply allow for more than one person to come from them. 
Yeah. The, it's, it's just, it's again, just fascinating how much of our political lives is determined by structure like this for folks who want, who are just getting turned on to this idea, right. And want to understand more about like, Hey, maybe I should focus less on the candidates and more on the structure. What is a good place for them to start to learn more about this stuff? Well, if you want to learn a lot about election reform, um, Lee Drutman's book, uh, Ending the Two-Party Doom or Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop is a fantastic place to start. Um, there's a book by a collection of political scientists called A Different Democracy, um, Matthew Shugart from UC Davis and a whole host of others whose names I forget off the top of my head. Apologies to those folks. Um, but there's a lot of other sort of movements um, kind of brewing at the local level, none really sort of like taking the mantle as like this is the leading um, champion of, of reforms. But there's a lot of places out there. And I think just honestly connecting with people in your local community and trying to get these things implemented yourself so that your place could be the example. It might be the way to go. Yeah. Amazing. Well, I'll tell you what, we'll put some of those books on our special bookshop at factuallypod.com slash books. If you want to pick them up and if you want to support the show and your local bookshop, that'll help you do that. Stan, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been incredible to talk to you. This is, this has been really cool. Yeah, and thanks for having me. This is a lot of fun. Appreciate it. Well, thank you once again to Santa Club Gia for coming on the show. I hope you loved that conversation as much as I did. Uh, once again, if you like the show, shoot me an email at factually at adamconover.net. I do love to read your emails all the time. And if you want to pick up any books from any of our incredible guests you've heard on the show, visit factuallypod.com slash books. That's factuallypod.com slash books. I want to thank our producers, Chelsea Jacobson and Sam Roudman, our engineer, Ryan Connor, Andrew WK for doing our theme song, the fine folks at Falcon Northwest for building me the incredible custom gaming PC that I'm recording this very episode for you on. You can find me online at Adam Conover, wherever you get your social media or at adamconover.net. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week on Factually. Factually. 